everybody. Welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. This is episode number 40. Robbie here. And in this episode, I am joined by the fantastic Lucy Ball. Now, when Lucy found herself throwing golf balls backwards over her head into buckets with Sir John Whitmore in a room at Deloitte in the mid-90s, she didn't necessarily know it at the time, but she was becoming caught up in the first sparks of corporate coaching that, as listeners will know, have grown and grown in the decades that followed. And these were also the first sparks that began to take her towards the work she now does as an in-demand master executive coach. Um, In our conversation, she describes how the people she met during that time offered a new kind of leadership, uh, which involved a departure from the more directive models and allowed the coaches, the people they were leading and managing to lead their own development. And experiencing that paradigm shift left Lucy ideally placed to carve out success as a director of the International Leadership Consultancy, Ideas Unlimited, and then on her own as a consultant and a coach for many of the biggest companies in the world. So in this episode, there's all kinds of great stuff that we get into. We talk about how to get comfortable talking about being a coach. Um, We talk about the benefits and pitfalls of coaching accreditation programs um, because of Lucy's work as um, part of the accreditation team uh, for Apex. Um, We talk about knowing when to partner up and the power of taking people with you. We talk about what happens when you choose a modality and go deep, as Lucy has with what she's learned as a student and then now faculty member at the Gestalt International Study Centre. We talk about going back to the source of coaching in counselling and psychotherapy, and we talk about pairs coaching in the new lens that it can offer leaders. We also get into a great conversation, one of my favourite bits, is when we talk about what took Lucy solo when she left Ideas Unlimited and why it matters to know that you can hold your own alone in a room with the heaviest hitters, even if you then choose to never do that again. Um, and that may be a, bit, a little bit, that's as much me as it is Lucy, by the way. Um, so before we get into the episode, a couple of quick things to talk to you about. One, um, as I said in the last episode, my book, my second book, How to Keep Going When You Want to Give Up, is out now. Um, You can find it on Amazon um, and in lots of other bookshops in Waterstones in the UK, for example, um, Blackwell's in the US, Barnes & Noble and elsewhere. Find it on their websites for sure. Um, And I'd love it if you would pick up a copy. And if you pick up a copy, I'd love it if you would write a review. There's very few things that make as much of a difference to uh, an independent author like me as people writing reviews. And if you've read How to Start When You're Stuck, having said that, and haven't posted a review, even just one uh, sentence and a four or five stars would be great. Of course, if you want to give it a two-star review, you can. Um, but that will, uh, yeah, it will hurt me slightly. No, I'm only joking. Um, give give the book whatever review you want, um, but reviews are really useful. And yeah, how to keep going when you want to give up is out now. And there's a lot in there for coaches about, you know, one of the most important things in coaching in some ways is, do you stay doing it? Um, if you stay doing it, like me, after seven years, you've accrued a lot of hours. You've accrued a lot of experience. You've accrued a lot of impact in the world. If you give up, if you don't practice coaching over those seven years, then you will have a lot less at the end of it. And in some ways, that's the lesson I learned from the Keep Going book um, and from the 12-minute method generally. Um, Also, now is a great time to join the Coach's Journey community. You can find out about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, For those who don't know, it's the cheapest, most flexible way to work with me. And I think really it's the most effective way for a coach to work with me. Um, You can make some arguments sometimes for doing one-to-one work, but the levels of learning that go on in a group coaching program, which is what it is, um, make it a very effective way to learn pretty much everything I can I can teach you about coaching. Um, the reason it's a good time to join now is that if you join now, you'll have access to the first ever 
and for all I know, only ever, but probably not the first ever Coach's Journey Community in-person event, which is taking place in London on the 10th of August. Um, so anyone who's a member can um, contact me via Patreon, which is where the membership happens, or via email to um, let me know they're coming and uh, book their place. Um, you can you can join that if you're a member at any level. So if, you join, if you're not sure if you want to be a membership member in the long term, but you'd love to come along, you can join at the £10 a month level. And also if you join that, our September call, um, the group call, is for all members. So again, you can join at the £10 a month level, Come along to the in-person event if you want to, or come along to the group call in September um, on the 13th. And um, if it's not for you after that, you can cancel. That's what makes it the most flexible way of working with me. So you can find out loads more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, or, and of course, you can um, email me um, via the Coaches Journey website or my website if you've got any questions. But back to today. Guests come to the show in a real variety of ways. Um, and the truth about Lucy coming onto the podcast, I can't remember if I, maybe I say this right at the start of the episode, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, was that I sat down, was thinking about, I wonder who's going to be the next guest. And I put a few feelers out. Um, and then Lucy's name, phase just flashed into my mind one morning. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to have a more in-depth conversation with Lucy. Um, she was someone I'd met just once, um, but followed since then. And as soon as she sent her information across, I knew it was going to be a fantastic conversation. And it was. I absolutely loved it. Lucy is someone who I found immediately impressive when uh, we met. And so um, as you'll hear, what she says about me and what she thought about me in that meeting um, is very meaningful to me. And both that exchange, which we have in this, in this interview about that first time that we met, is a great mind- reminder that we don't always know how we come across and we don't always see what's going on for other people on the inside. Um, this is a great conversation. Lucy has so much to offer as a coach of immense experience with, with all kinds of um, work in the corporate sector and beyond. So I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did and um, enjoy the Coach's Journey podcast episode number 40. Lucy Ball, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Hello. Hi. Um, it's great to have you here. Um, as is often the case before a conversation like this, I was thinking about you, obviously, because I've been doing, you know, doing research and, and reading about you and that kind of thing. But I was remembering that I think, is this right? The first time, so we met, we, I think we've met in person once and it was a, our mutual friend, Eve Poole's book launch. Um, but I, that, the, the reason I question that is because um, I think I, I just saw it on your, um, one of the bits of, stuff you sent across to me ahead of the call was not the picture we'll probably use for the episode, but another picture of you, which is really familiar to to me because I think it was on the the website of a leadership program, Claw Leadership, that I worked at for a long time when you were listed as an associate there. The picture is very familiar to me anyway, but I don't think we ever met then. I think we met at Eve's book launch. Is that right? I think that is right. Yeah. I don't even know when that was, Robbie. Mm. But what I but I really remember meeting you and it the there was something very vibrant about you and our conversation that I remember it really clearly I remember what I was wearing I remember thinking oh I would really like to have more conversations with Robbie yeah Yeah, I've sent sent you clients have have any of them said Lucy Ball sent me oh I think maybe one yeah oh well that is more than I've sent you I've sent you more than one well thank you very much um (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny, like, I remember that conversation very clearly as well. 
I don't know when it was. I'm going to guess it was like 2017 or something like that. We could check poor Eve. We could check when her book came out because it'll say yeah. that. And I can't remember 2017, 20. Yeah, probably 2017. Because I think I was either just about. So I, uh, that was, I think it was like a transition-y moment for me. I was probably still working part-time at Claw, having done a year. I did a year there full-time and then a year and a bit um, part-time while, while, while working on coaching on the side. And I remember that conversation really clearly as well. Um, and I particularly remember talking about pe- the pairs coaching stuff that you were either, I don't know if you were just getting into it then or, 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 mm. or you were doing, and I could definitely want to get to that a bit later on. Um, but, <laughs> and then, yeah, here we are, um, a little while later and yeah, I, I felt the same about you. And yeah, this is the first time since then that we've ever had a conversation. So I'm really glad we're doing this and we're going to have some chunky time together this afternoon. Yeah. And you've been, you've kind of been there, like read your stuff. And I think you might read mine sometimes, or it's yeah. not as regular as yours. But yeah, I kind of, I've watched you. And um, yeah, I'm just, it's been a pleasure to see what you've been doing. I mean, you're obviously incredibly productive and successful, and we couldn't be more pleased for you. That's very nice. <laughs> yeah, I always, I always um, smile. I always, I smiled then, people who, who couldn't see me because most people won't be able to. Um, I smiled when Lucy said productive there. I still find that funny. Like, it's obviously true. I can't deny it now, but I don't always feel like it. And I think that's partly like I have the sense of what more could be created. But um, yeah, when people started saying that to me, I had to like, that was a really good moment in my personal growth because I had to look at it and go, this doesn't feel, I'm not productive. And then look at it and go, oh yeah, I can't really deny that I am. Um, It's just that I guess it's one of those interesting things. It's how we sometimes don't um, like, I don't think I'm productive in the way that I thought people were productive, something like right. that. Like, okay. you know, for example, the writing piece, you say, you know, yours isn't as regular as mine. Yeah. That's, that's how I'm productive. Right. I write one short article pretty much every week. And then over time that looks really productive and it is right. Cause there's like 250 plus of them, but it's not how I thought some, something about it is not how I thought people were productive. And so I always still have a little, still had a little like uh, kind of, Oh, really there. Um, but that's an amazing feedback. Also, Lucy, thank you for that, about that conversation at that time. Cause I remember thinking, <laughs> I remember thinking, why has Eve invited me to this thing was part of it. And of course, for me, it's like, I was meeting people like you uh, and some, I think I ended up having a conversation with you and, and probably some of, uh, we can, we'll get to this in a second, listeners um, who are bored by this can like skip forward two minutes to get to the actual, um, the, the, the first question. Um, but uh, I think I was talking to you and maybe some of your and Eve's, so people should look up Eve, by the way, she's an amazing woman with a great book called Leader Smithing. You can watch a, a TEDx talk of, of the same title, I think doing lots of interesting things in the world. And, and she was a big part of, again, that leadership program that I used to work in the office team for. Um, but I remember being there in a conversation with like you and maybe some of your and Eve's, do you and Eve know each other from Deloitte? So maybe some of your colleagues from then or, or something. And it's like, I remember thinking, yeah, I'm, you know, having some of those thoughts about being out of my depth in these conversations. So it's great that that didn't come across and good. Uh, oh, it good really reminder. didn't. It really didn't. <laughs> And there's a little bit of something for me in that, which is, well, people might look up to me and think that they're out of their depth around me because of my experience. And that's hard for me to own. But I am nearly 50 now and I've been on this journey for over 20 years. And so I that's some of my development for myself is just owning owning my experience. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I, and I got to say, even more, <laughs> I felt it again today reading your reading your bio back and all the training and professional development you've done, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of that and all the clients you've worked with and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you probably, yeah, you probably do. You've definitely got experience. Um, and, no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, but but maybe. Maybe actually, if you don't mind, we could speak. You could speak to that a little bit more. I guess what's so you know, people, the listeners will have just heard me giving a load of intro to you right there ahead of the, the the kind of start of the conversation that we've just done. I'll record that later so I can make it extra extra intimidating for people, so they've really like learned who you are and who you've worked with and all that kind of thing in lots of fun ways. But um, when you say that's something for you to look at yourself, how does it feel from the inside? All those things. Um, well, I still feel about nineteen. I think, mm. um, and there's some great stuff about that. The kind of I still feel playful. I still feel open to learning. I still feel in awe of lots of people that I want to be more like. Um, but I, I have had to reflect for various reasons over you know recent times whether it's getting a next level of accreditation or talking to clients about my experience I have you have to keep retelling the story of yourself don't you and um so it's got a bit of a narrative flow to it and it starts with being a philosophy graduate with no idea what to do with her life um doesn't really set you up for a professional or vocational career a philosophy degree um and getting quite lost um finding myself in the corporate world um quite young finding myself in consultancy roles quite young um and having a level of confidence and you know ability to get away with it that I think I manage just with some brains and some interpersonal skills with a load of underneath lots and lots of anxiety and am I good enough and um you know proving pleasing and all that kind of stuff um but just ending up exposed to lots and lots of good corporate change not always corporate sometimes government sometimes third sectors and um settings where I was thrown at the deep end and lots of things so um I've, I've worked in a big car manufacturer in HR. I then moved to a consultancy role in a consultancy where I was a senior consultant working with lots of utility companies. I spent time in Deloitte consulting in their change management and leadership practice where I met Eve Poole and where I was doing lots of work in organizations going through massive change, process change, tech change. And I was, you know, I was the people person on the team to running my own consultancy with with a bunch of partners sort of accidentally you know joining a small consultancy called Ideas Limited and then um feeling like I had loads to learn and then within a couple of years the the founder moving on and selling the business to us and then for 14 years we ran it um to the last sort of eight years being Lucy Ball Consulting and um you know running my running my own thing so um yeah that's there's been a journey and along the way lots and lots of context and experience and variety and stuff been gathered yeah and in that Lucy when did you first come across coaching 
and it was at Deloitte. So I, I, I guess I mean it's like, that was the nineties, and it was when um, people were reading the inner game of tennis. <laughs> And, you know, Tim Galway was bringing the inner game of tennis into the inner game of work. Um, Deloitte ran a programme with David Henry and John Whitmore. So John Whitmore was a racing driver. David Henry was an athlete. Um, and they uh, ran a, a grow-based, a grow-model-based coaching programme in Deloitte for, for all of us in the, in the people change and leadership team. So I got to learn coaching from from them and and we were racking tennis balls and hitting golf balls into buckets. And there was very much a kind of sport, sport to business transition theme to that learning. Um, And from there, coming into contact with Miles Downey and, you know, his work and around performance coaching and Trisha Bay was the partner of the leadership and um, change function that that I was in at at Deloitte. And then she went on to work with Miles Downey at um, the school that he set up in in the Mall. So I, yeah, I was accidentally just part of this kind of beginnings of the boom of coaching in the corporate world and was very lucky and privileged to be given very expensive training while I was in Deloitte. Um, Uh, And and for people who... I think that that inner game of tennis story is so interesting. So I, you, you might know, I had Miles on the podcast last late last year, and that finally got me. I'd had the inner game of tennis on my Kindle for about probably since I read his book, you know, five or six years before that, and I finally read it. And then I happened because I was doing some coaching training to get coaching for performance out, which is uh, John Whitmore's book about grow essentially, but with that doesn't really do it justice. It's a great book, um, and I, in there was this story that I didn't know until that point that Grow was created based on the inner game. And now, now I know that, you know, you've just told that story. The story is everywhere. But I don't know if you can, from your point of view, speak to that a little bit more, speak to that kind of beginnings of coaching in the corporate world and what it was like and what those people were like at that time. And yeah, tell the stories if people haven't heard them. Tell a, tell a tennis ball or golf ball story because those stories, you know, they're, they're kind of amazing stories. Well, there's such sporting examples are such a tangible way to bring things to life, aren't they? So um, what I remember doing is an activity with um, John where we uh, we had to coach somebody to throw a golf ball in a bucket. And we tried the method of um, directing them. So this so so your coachee would be standing with their back to the bucket holding the golf ball and they had to kind of lob it over their head and the first way we tried it was as the coach you would say left a bit right a bit two two meters two two meters out you know come and the second way we tried it was was asking questions where do you think that ball landed do you think it was short or do you think it was long do you think it was to the left or to the right and then doing then adding our data Okay, you yeah, you it was short. You were right, or no? Actually, it was way long. But when you started with the with the coach's awareness of what they were doing, the the ball ended up in the bucket ten times quicker than the directive approach. 
I mean, it is nuts. Every time, like I, you know, I've read Miles's book, you know, I read it a long time ago and I read it again when I was going to speak to him and, and I talked to him about those stories and, you know, they, they kind of, even as someone who's done a lot of coaching, they're quite hard to hold the reality of that, of that being true somehow. Like it's like the magical side of it. Like, because I guess we're just not taught that that's how, that's why that book and coaching is so, can be so impactful, I guess. We're just not really taught that that's, that's how we work often. Yeah. And I do, I feel like one of the great things, um, one of the feelings that I associated with that time and those people was, was a sort of liberation from this paradigm of someone's got the expertise to make you better if you just do what they tell you. And, um, and I so needed to hear that. Uh, <laughs> it was very freeing, but it, it also still is the prevailing paradigm, I would say, 20 years later. So um, I see those guys now and they were all guys and that, you know, that that wasn't ideal. Um, but they were great guys. They were accessible, human, funny, um authentic normal guys who were kind of bursting bubbles um and they had to, you know just a lovely way of being with people that they did they did what they were talking about well not just talking about what they so I guess that was the other thing I was experiencing was a way of teaching which which was by being what you being what you teach not just telling people what to do um and that really that oozes off people like miles and it used off people like john looking back now maybe that's it actually maybe you just answered the next question that, that, that's in my mind but maybe it's maybe it's what else then what else did you learn at that time seeing the bubbles be burst with those particular people in that particular environment in the corporate world that that is still fundamental today Well, I think it was it was at, at the beginning of me starting to trust that I could be myself, and that was enough. Um, and it coincided with some other things that you know that also helped with that. You know, getting trained in Myers Briggs and um, getting exposed to strengths based approaches to development. Um, it was, I mean, it still had a long way to go in terms of putting it into practice, but, um, you know, working for people like Trisha Bay and being exposed to the development of, that I had, starting to feel like if I could check in with myself, with what I'm aware of, what I desire, what I want, what feels right to me, what I'm good at, what I love to do, uh, and start to trust that. I could follow that and let that guide me um that that was a way to run a that was a way to run a life that was a way to run a run a career um I think that was that I probably didn't know that at the time yeah but I feel like that little muscle of checking in regularly with is this am I thriving is this what I want do I like this do I like these people do I want to be here where do I want to be what do I want a bit more of what do I want less of that's become a a practice that's served me well in my life and and career that I think began there yeah 
and maybe we'll come back to that in, in a sec because we want to kind of I want to join some dots um, in what happened. But do you know, like it's I, I hadn't thought about this until just now. But do you know why? Why was Deloitte investing in that with those people at that time? So that's because it's quite forward. I guess what we're saying is <laughs> what we think. It sounds like we agree is that there is yeah, like you said, there's this there's still the prevailing wisdom now that instruction is better than coaching in in big parts of education, in big parts of management, in across sectors, right? That's still in some ways the prevailing wisdom. And yet there's something magical about the other thing. And mm. so for Deloitte to be training you all up with those people at that time was to be at the forefront, I guess, of that a change, which I think has accelerated even in the, so in the seven years I've been coaching, it's, 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 um, yeah, I have my seventh anniversary of somebody paying me to coach, uh, last this week and well, last week, maybe, um, thank you. And, um, even in that time, I think I've seen it accelerate. It's more well-known. I have to explain what coaching is to people and their prospective clients less or in a different way than I did five, six, seven years ago some of those big coaching platforms like better up and make it, you know, are actually like, you know, taking it somewhat mainstream. You know, they, I, I do some work for better up and they were on the BBC homepage when Prince Harry joined their team, you know? So it's like, it's becoming more well-known, but in, in, I think in your bio, it said 1998 was when you did the training with John Whitmore. Like that's quite ahead of the curve. Why do you think that that, um, why do you think they were there then? There were some amazing people, in the Deloitte leadership at that time I don't know Deloitte very well anymore but at that time there were some there were some people I would I really looked up to um so there was there was just something about humanity and the culture of Deloitte um there, there was a genuine desire to build a a, a culture of humanity connection development that I believed and um and I think some of the partners there they just were like they were just those kind of people <laughs> you know they they had been born that way been brought up that way or just learned through experience of relationship building with clients over the years that this was a valid way of being in the world and a way that got results um and I think there was also just the the sheer kind of commercial edge and the desire for performance, and it works, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, there might also have been the the excitement and the edge of bringing something new into clients, particularly from the sporting world, which was such a, you know, such an attractive thing for clients to buy. Um, so it was a kind of combination of factors, and and it was it was still a kind of world where um, you could. So, you know, we got sent to Cyprus for two weeks for our induction because with all of the European new intake and we had an absolute ball on the beach with the Norwegian office. And so there was a kind of, um, invest, you know, investment in people and a lack of penny pinching around investment in people that was, I think, probably a bit more normal around then. Uh, you know, we were doing, in my my next role, we would do programmes for Unilever and other, you know, where we would like rent a cruise ship or... <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure how much of that, you know, was allowed after the kind of dot com bubble burst. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and after COVID, 
I imagine and even COVID, less so, right? Yeah. 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 And after the, you know, and after, you know, the, the financial crash and all of that. So it was kind of different times in a way. Yeah. But what a, yeah, like you said, what a, what a time to be there in lots of ways lucky. to get, get to learn from Very all those people lucky. and that time. Yeah. And, and so then how did you use that initially? Where did the coaching, how did that fit in in the next few years? Well, it was very, it was sort of under the radar. Um, It was, it sort of integrated into client work and client projects. And, you know, a lot of what we were doing was big system and process change, you know, putting in a massive Oracle system or, and um, people like me would have the job of facilitating the exec team planning the transformation and so the the it was more using coaching skills in the course of a consulting assignment um that I sort of became a coach kind of by accident when um I'd left a lawyer and I was in my next um consultancy and one of our clients said would you be my high performance coach Lucy and um I was quite taken aback at the request there was a sort of an assumption that from him that that's what I already was and um loads of imposter syndrome from me um his name is Steve um Steve Solomon I still think of him now as my very first client um, he's on your like uh your like bio sheet right I kept his testimonial for all those years because he was my first and he probably doesn't even know that in fact if he'd known at the time he might not have wanted me but <laughs> is that, but, but that testi- is that the testimonial from that first engagement because it's a really great te- first testimonial if it is it's a testimonial from the time after I'd been work I worked with him for a while and then I ended up working with a lot of his team members who were all sales directors and so it was after I'd done a lot of work with his his direct reports that that he wrote that which, yeah, let's um, just like just because I've got it here and thinking about absorbing it. This is an amazing testimonial. Lucy is the best coach I've come across in 21 years of leading people. I've used three external coaches to support my team this year. The group who have worked with Lucy have progressed at circa five times the rate of the other groups and are far stronger directors of their business as a result. Our region is leading by 20% this year, and I believe Lucy's coaching is a key reason. Lucy, that is the testimonial that every coach dreams of. I know Steve is such a sales guy, so he made it all so tangible. You know, he's yeah, exactly. a banker and a sales guy. He's like, 20% this, five yeah. times this. <laughs> None of that fluffy stuff. She's supportive and challenging at the same time. No, five times better yeah. than the others. <laughs> so good, though. Such a good testimonial. We all need to get Steve, uh, a Steve to write us. Um, we write need us a Steve, yeah. yeah. Um, so, he just, so he just asked you, he said, will you be my high-performance coach? It's also interesting language, right? High-performance coach. Um, I guess maybe because of coaching for performance and that, that, that was, that was that the language at that, that was time? That much the language. And I was working with him as a, on his team around being a high performance team. So there's lots of language around high performance team. Um, the, the models of high performing teams that were around were about, you know, it was, it was, I, and I also think it was what financial services needed to call coaching in order for it to be credible um you know what it looked like was sitting with people in hotel foyers and talking to the whole person <laughs> um uh, but it that's you know that's the label that worked for him and I, I didn't really care what it was called um and, and, 
you said you felt a lot of imposter syndrome, but what was like when you remember that engagement, other than the great testimonial, what what was it like to actually do the work in that in that more concentrated way? I absolutely loved it. <clears throat> and I so I felt this funny mixture of um imposter syndrome and I'm like doing what I'm meant to be doing and I I do deserve to do it and I am good at it and it feels right and um yeah I really I really loved it I felt really grateful for the opportunity and I really loved it and I I started to back myself as well yeah and and did it just did it just grow from there was that then what what happened next with your coach well I thought I'd better get some kind of so I'd had all of the training at Deloitte but I thought I'd better get some kind of accreditation um and I also um started as part of my role in the consultancy I was at I started to offer being a coach uh, you know as a more of a formal thing um so it I, I think it started to sort of solidify my sense of myself as a coach amongst other things um with, and that kind of grew and grew and what was the accreditation that you did at that time the accreditation was um, with the Coaching Academy, which I don't even know if it still exists. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Uh, yeah. Um, in some ways, I've I've had reason to feel a little bit embarrassed about that because when I've talked to people who you know did their accreditation at the Academy of Executive Coaching or, and got really you know high quality people like Miles and teaching them. Um, I've sometimes felt a bit like, oh, I did a real quick and dirty. Um, but, you know, it really, really worked for me. So I was, I w- had a young child. I was pregnant. I was running a business with three business partners that so was really busy. And my husband had just gone back to college um, to study as a physio and I was the breadwinner. I couldn't afford the time or the money to go to the Academy of Executive Coaching and I want, but I still wanted something that would, you know, fit around all that. And it was great. You know, I, got, I had to do 100 hours of practice. I had to attend lots of modules, but quite a lot of it was virtual, was on the phone, which back then was, you know, doing stuff virtually was, I did a few weekends. So it, you know, it fitted around my life. And, yeah. um, and I was in a, in the most incredible group. There was a vicar in our group. There was, um a teacher in our group there were you know some corporate people but there was also just some people who wanted to be life coaches some people wanted to be in the corporate world yeah I really look back on it fondly Mm. yeah and I didn't I went to they they I don't know if they did and they run a free weekend that you can go to and I was kind of playing with what I was going to do with what the hell I was going to do with my life I went to that as one of the things and that, that thing about the people is feels really true of that of that place like I don't know if it's true of maybe it's true of lots of coaching trainings but <clears throat> it wasn't the right place for me to train but there was something about the mix of people that was there that I liked and I can really imagine that that thing that that you're saying it, mm. it, it interesting that so that but but that thing about the kind of almost embarrassed that it wasn't the academy of executive coaching is so interesting isn't it yeah partly because lisa which we can get to you're now on the other side aren't you you're, you're you know you're you're in a you're a credit for the for apex um and so it's like which is which is am i gonna get let me see if i get this right is it the what's what does apex stand for let me see if i can get it right yeah. 
the Association for Professional Executive Coaching and Supervision. There you go. So it's key, key thing. It has the word executive next to the word coaching, which sounds very important. Not only that, Robbie, when you get the qualification, you 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 get to call yourself an executive master coach. I mean, that's almost worth however long it takes itself <laughs> for all my imposter syndrome, isn't it? Um, but what like <laughs> both both I guess from both sides, from the from from having that little feeling of embarrassment and the kind of words executive coaching, you know, what what's that about, do you think? Because lots of people would I think feel have some of that feeling from one side or the other, from like uh, from I, I kind of wish I had that could say I want to be able to say that about myself but I, I don't feel like I can I don't think I'm that or well, a number of times I've lied to a taxi driver and just said I'm a primary school teacher or a ballet dancer <laughs> or a vet like something people understand that's real I mean I, I don't think it's just for coaches or executive coaches or, you know for anyone who has one of these jobs you know my husband's a physiotherapist in the NHS and he everyone knows what that is <laughs> yeah so there's something about sounding kind of up yourself that I don't like there's something about um not seeming like you're in the real world that I don't like there's something about the sense of I have to label myself an executive coach because that means that I'm far superior from a, just a coach coach so there's all of that, that I'm a bit allergic to yeah. Um and I've got more comfortable with it as I've got older. Um so I don't know what I think for me, I don't know what it will be for others, but for me that is about um just grow just growing into a sense of it's okay to be you, it's okay to be doing what you're doing, um, it's okay to be to have a something weighty about you, you know? Yeah. God, how does that all sound? Yeah, it sounds sounds true. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it is an interesting thing. Let me see if I can catch this. As you were saying that, particularly, you know, I got older, it changed. The kind of, I'm not, I might miss the words, but like the kind of comfort being you. It is like, I think it is something that you worry about. I worried about as a coach a lot at the start, and I now don't really think about it. Now, part of that might be because I've just decided how I'm going to talk about my work. Um, and part of it, I think, is that gradually over time, that matters less because I've done the work. Like, I've like, I know what I am and what I can do because I've done it for thousands of hours. And so it matters a lot less what I call myself at, at that point. Um, that's one of the things that that came up as you were talking. And, and also that, like, everything feels awkward. I had this thought last year sometime, like, when you're talking about some new part of yourself, it, it always feels awkward. Like even things I was really, you know, glad about, you know, so we had a baby 18 months ago and it's like, it's really weird to start talking about being a dad for a while. Really awkward. Anyone who's got married knows how weird it is, you know, and I found it more weird than exciting to talk about husbands and wives at first. It's just like, yeah. this is language that is just outside of who I am until it's not. Um, and the way my experience of the way it's not is you just talk about it more. And then after yeah. a while. It would be really weird now to not refer to having a wife at this point. <laughs> um, um, and and, and Lucy, yeah. while, because we're talking about executive coaching, maybe it's interesting to talk about that role at Apex. 
because is this right? You, you're a, you're a, what did you say? An accredited master coach, a master executive coach with them. Yeah. Some, some of those words in some yeah, order. Sounds very impressive. And I'm sure it is very impressive. I don't know why we shouldn't just, <laughs> I shouldn't just laugh at this. Like it is also probably impressive. I, I don't know. I don't know what the accreditation process involves, but maybe that's interesting because I think these days I had a really interesting conversation with on the podcast with a woman called Jean Balfour. And she was, she runs an, uh, uh, she works in Singapore and she runs a coach training that's accredited with the ICF. And she had a really interesting point of view on how important it is for the world of coaching to have more than one accrediting body. And for the ones that aren't the ICF to kind of grow and be present, because then you get a really interesting conversation about what is coaching and what is good coaching. And if you just have one, it's like having a monopoly in any industry, the innovation and the conversation stagnates. And um, I would have thought, I, like when I was reading about Apex, I was like, do I know about this? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I didn't know about it, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, didn't know much about it. So I guess I'm curious, how did you end up doing that work with, with them? And, and what are your thoughts about accreditation and credentials and that whole part of coaching? Yeah. That's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. God, didn't you ever do any coach training? <laughs> Did I, say, I can't remember if I said this before. I think I said it before we switched on, didn't I? That one of the, I said to Lucy, one of the fun things about doing interviews is I don't, I can ask as many questions as I want in one go. <laughs> um, actually, as I've, I've, I tend to do that more as a coach now. Um, so I'll pick the, I'll pick the ones I, I heard. Perfect. Um, well, first of all, I'm not, I can represent Apex as, a, as an Apex member. I'm not going to, you know, represent it as a you know officially I'll, I'll give you my take and and so my take on accreditation for myself has largely been is it an additive and generative process for me um the 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 getting the the badge and the tick is part of it but, uh, but what what that gives me is the the sense of confidence and permission and the re- reduction of the imposter syndrome but it's also for me got to feel like the process itself is is additive and useful and developmental. Um, and that, you know, that was true when I chose the coaching academy diploma that I did, you know, 20 years ago. And then when I when I did the APEX accreditation process, I don't know when that was, five, six years, five years ago, maybe. Um, what I was looking for was another level of badge but also another another chance to we kind of update my story about who I am and that's what that's why I picked the apex process so apex differentiate themselves from competency-based accreditation processes theirs is much more of a narrative-based process so Rather than these are all the boxes you have to tick and the skills you have to demonstrate, what Apex say is tell us, tell us who you are, tell us your experience, tell us about your clients, tell us about your philosophy of coaching, tell us about your development journey, narrate yourself. <laughs> um, and we'll ask you for ref- references and we'll ask you for hours and we'll ask you for but we're not gonna say how many you need. we we want to hear how you talk about what you are we want to see um 
what they call a master's level of self-reflection and self-awareness um, so that we know that you're a coach that knows that working on yourself is the work of working with other people. Um, and we're okay if you've done all your coaching in your local community um, as well as in your organization we're okay if you're an internal coach we're okay if you're an external coach we're okay if you've come the sports route we're okay if you've come the corporate route we're okay if you've come the psychotherapy route that's not what we're looking for we're kind of looking for who you are all together um and there's you know there's some criteria to help structure the accreditation process and and have some standardization of of the process but um it attracts mature coaches who are interested in that that process mm. and it's so fascinating being on the accreditation team because and so it's a member-run organization as well so the development is run by members the accreditation team is run by members we're all volunteers and um there's a kind of community being part of a community that I like it needs to grow it needs to become more international it needs to become more diverse and the board is working on that right now um but I I was part of the accreditation team I get to hear people's stories and help them tell the story so there's a supportive process of accreditation as well so you get a partner to work through the process with you so it's in dialogue anyway I've probably gone on too long about it but I'm a fan (laughs) yeah no it's great and I think probably like uh you know 80% of people listening have just thought oh I should look into this um, because yeah, what like like you said, it, um, an additive process. Yeah, and there's different levels. You know, you can if you're not ready for that kind of master qualification, you, there's a couple of levels below that can get you involved in the community as you build up your hours and um, provide support as you yeah. do. Yeah, nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, just to rewind or go back to your journey a little bit you did the coaching academy training and you worked with Steve and then how did coaching, how was coaching a part of your work and life from then on? You, you, you kind of started advertising coaching, right? speech marks, advertising coaching as a service at the consultancy. What, what yeah, was so next? I, uh, well, I was at a consultancy called Ideas Unlimited, which still exists and still going strong. Um, and- no, I haven't, I haven't, I, I thought of those, so we used to work with them at Claw. Maybe that was, did you do, what did you work on at Claw on short courses or the fellowships? I, I can't remember. Both. Yeah. So there was a module on both of those called Authentic Leadership, Yeah. which Dick Robertson, my colleague and I designed and okay. ran for many years with Claw and, and brought in other associates to run. And um, yeah, it ran for, for many years. It was such a wonderful experience to work with artists and, yeah, it was. And it was, it was, you know, always, because I used to read the feedback. So this is, this is after you were delivering it. I think Dick was still delivering it maybe with, with Tim, Tim sometimes maybe. and Susie Oki, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, it would always get amongst the feedback on the short course. I, I worked on the short courses for a while and then on the fellowships. So if people don't want to look this up, this is a leadership program in the cultural sector in the UK, kind of, I think probably still internationally leading in terms of leadership for arts and culture you know when we were doing that when I was working there there weren't many other things like that internationally kind of amazing thing and um yeah very visionary very visionary program really created by a woman who just saw 
saw a, basically a diversity problem in the big jobs in the arts in the UK and set out to use, she had money, so set out to use that. And um, yeah, it would, I would read the feedback and that, that day would always get good mentions, you know, always bring a lot for people. Um, yeah, I remember, a, this is a little aside, but because we've been talking about that kind of uh, shift of self-perception a really chemo like a really nice moment for me was on the fellowships one year so they people who don't know they go on a two these these fellows do like a nine month long program and part of it is a two to starts with a two-week residential um in this farmhouse it used to be a farmhouse in um ken probably not anymore i think by the end of when i was working there we were realizing you know it was entirely unworkable for anyone who you know couldn't walk around so it's like there was no way of making that farmhouse accessible but an amazing place while we were there and I remember Dick asking me to sit in on one part of that of that day to beat to facilitate it that's a big deal for me at the time you know those those times so yeah I'll, I'll definitely remember that and seeing the impact that it had um so yeah Dick I know well and so you were then working with him at that organization yeah so Dick and I I'd worked with Dick I first met Dick when I was about 22 so we'd worked together in a previous life and then we ran with um Steve and Karen and Susie and uh, you know I probably forget everyone uh, I want to mention um we ran Ideas Limited for 14 years together so um Dick and I go way back and we the kind of work we were doing at Ideas Limited was sort of big scale engagement work um bringing together sort of two organizations after a merger and acquisition or going through major transformation strategic change with organizations and it was a lot of big group intervention stuff often very colorful and engaging and human and often wacky and music and color and design and um but it was also slightly more intimate work it was also work with the with the leadership teams or um teams leading certain parts of a program and then sometimes it was one-to-one work and so I was just weaving more one-to-one work in to those kind of assignments. Um, coaching would often come out of team development work um, and, you know, loving the range. So for the, all those 14 years, coaching was not my main gig. Um, I was doing it amongst other things. Yeah. And sorry, this is a weird question, but I think I know the answer because I've, I've read what you say about yourself, but your website is still Lucy Ball Consulting, right? How does coaching feel now as a part of that is that the main thing now is that how you think about it or is it still part of a kind of suite of of work that you do um I would say it's it's more of a main a main gig so I'm I'm usually either working with people one-to-one or with or coaching teams exact team development um pairs is in there I know you wanted to touch on that so working with two people at a time um and then supervision and coaching of other coaches is in there. Teaching with the Gestalt International Study Centre is in there. Facilitating at the Climate Action Unit. So I've 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 got this sort of portfolio, and so it never felt right to be Lucy Ball coaching. I I needed to have a bigger. I needed to be able to play in wherever I fancied. Yeah. But, but but still, the bedrock and the you know the main income is coaching or team coaching in organizations yeah yeah and look you've just uh what you've done like name checked lots of interesting things that we could double click on and go into and let's do that because we've got we've got time but first of all i'm curious about then that transition 
because it was from Ideas Unlimited, right, to to Lucy Ball Consulting. So yeah. how did that come about? And and yeah, what was important at that time? It came about in a long, sometimes painful process of asking myself what I wanted, what I didn't want. Um, it was a phase of life when my ki- you know kids were growing up. Um, it was sort of the beginnings of thinking I wanted to individuate a bit more and prove something to myself without my business partners holding my hands. And um, there was the agony of not wanting to separate from something and wonderful friends and partnerships and um, a safe place um, and a place with lots of memories. So it was a real long drawn out separation that wasn't always easy for me and might not have been easy for others as well um but I I think I think really what you know the big theme underneath it was I still had something to prove to myself about what I could do by myself um and I I needed to um address some of my fears of um going it alone without backup um and I think also it was about direction and it was about how I wanted to be paying my attention, where I wanted to be spending my time and attention. And I, I think in the in the role of as a director of an organization with associates, with a business model to feed and business development to do to feed a business model, what I was supposed to be spending my time on was not always what I wanted to be spending it on because I really love that intimate work with clients. Um, and I tried for a long time to sort of get off the drug of that. And then I decided I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you, you know, you, you might not, you might not, there might not be a good, there might not be a, what do you say, concise answer to this, but you said you had some things you wanted to prove to yourself about what you could do on your own. Yeah. Have you proved that or or what have you proved? <sighs> yourself um I think one of the things I've proved things I've proved to myself is that I can stand up in front of a group and facilitate a team of heavy hitting people often blokes um and um can feel a sense of power and feel a sense of influence and not be undermined by my inner critic and not need to be rescued by someone. Um, that was something that I've proved to myself. Yeah. Do you, do you have like a, is there a particular heavy hitting team of mostly blokes that come to <laughs> mind as like, a, I don't know, that was particularly true, that you had to really lean into all that, all the courage you must have needed for that? Uh, I couldn't possibly name client names. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what, I guess in there, you know, I hear the kind of, I can hear what's probably the the journey from courage to confidence, something like that, mm. that happened as you did that. And I can really feel that sense of like what's required of us when it's just us mm. versus what's required of us when we're part of an organization. And I remember 
probably told this story on the podcast before, but I remember when I was starting out, it was really, really useful to me to coach on behalf of some organizations. And on a really small practical level, for example, with fees, it was really helpful when they charged more than I was comfortable saying that I could say, we charge this. Because suddenly it's not about, it's not all on me, right? It's on, it's not, you know, even though it never really is, but it feels in those moments like it's all about me. Like, am I worth this money? And it doesn't have to when there's the kind of, the company holding me in lots of different ways. And that there was that, that shift probably happening for you in, in, in different ways or, or some shift like that. What? Hmm. Question again. This is like good interviewing technique. It's like just start talking. Good coaching as well. Just start start talking and see what happens at the end of it. Um, yeah. So the question is like specifically when faced with those kind of heavy hitting teams, probably in in big organizations, mostly blokes. You know, you said I feel power. I feel influence. Like what specifically have you learned that you do really well in those environments? Um, well, one of the things I've noticed that I've learned is that it's really okay to take a, take a colleague with you and do it together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think I had to prove the first bit first. And now I, now I rarely do that stuff without a partner. Um, and I do prefer it that way, but, um, I think the bit that I, I mean, look, we're all, we're all, working through some stuff aren't we right we're all we've all got some kind of underlying stuff unfinished business that are the work we choose and the life we choose is is helping us to work through um and I think some of mine was about voice some of mine was about um holding a boundary some of mine was about the fact that I'm five foot two and I've always looked 10 years younger than I am um so I I think it was about kind of owning some space um feeling like an equal being able to uh stand my ground approach say no say yes and um just feel some of my own personal power in all of that um yeah it was it was development it was development of my capacity to be in contact with other people in um not just when it was easy but when there's a bit of heat or a bit of difficulty and for whatever you know reasons that I'll continue to work on in therapy (laughs) there are for that that felt an important thing for me to learn and to to put myself we expose myself to and learn to deal with. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> it did to me. Uh, and that's all I care about. I don't care about anybody else. Yeah. Um, well, tell me what sense it makes to you, because I'm interested in your, you know, what's your version of that? Am I allowed to ask you questions? Yes, please do. Um, that's my, fa- <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> My favourite part of this podcast, Lucy, is when I get to talk. So um, uh, thank you for asking. Okay, yeah, let, let me see if I can actually answer that. So... Well, I really get that. It's actually, in a way, I'm kind of doing it right now. I really get that sense of uh, you learn that you can, you want to take people with you sometimes, 
right but what I and I'm actually doing one at the moment I'm doing some work with a team at the moment and I said yes to doing it by myself and that was definitely the right thing to do and it would be I'm not sure that I'll do this stuff by myself again just because it's a lot like actually the last guest we had on the podcast John Monks he he's um does a lot of facilitation and and in there the book that he and his partner at his consultancy wrote they talk about always have two people there now they're partly talking about especially online right because then you've got one person to do the to do the at least some of the tech stuff and another person to to be facilitating but i think it works in person because you you know you it's great if you've got one person who can go and see the person who's struggling with things while the other one stays with the group there's all these advantages to doing something with a group or a team in partnership there's so much benefit to be had by that but there's a difference isn't there between um it's like there's a developmental difference, you might say, between I need to have somebody around and I know for sure that I can handle this by myself um, and I'm now choosing to have somebody else around. And they look the same from the outside because you've got somebody else around facilitating the thing with. But inside you, it sounds like, and definitely I, I'm taking your experience and projecting onto myself in the future, I can imagine that that will feel different to me. It wasn't exactly why I said yes to this particular piece of work that I'm thinking of, but it, it's going to be a result of that. I will know that I can run a process like this, design it, um, deal with it, facilitate it, all that kind of stuff, manage the clients by myself without help. And that to know that and then choose to work in partnership, I think, um, what might we say, that allows for to be choosing for the right reasons and to do the thing by ourselves probably allows for us to work through for me to work through my own version of the stuff that yeah. you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, think that what, what you've just described, I really helps me clarify my sort of journey through it. And it, you know, maybe where I was at was a bit of, a bit of dependence or codependence. And I, what I'm, where I'm at now is definitely interdependence, but I had to do the independence bit I had to do the second adolescence, you know. Yeah. I don't need you grown-ups around. I'm going to do it by myself. I think that's a really common phase that a lot of probably, I don't know if this is everyone, but certainly I've had that. I've had like phases of work with people. And that probably was, yeah, in my business, probably similar thing, actually. It probably was a kind of codependent. It's like, I actually really, it's the really smart thing to have a lot of people around right now because I need that. And then, yeah, the independent phase. And then there's a point at which that, is no longer serving and there's there's a lot more that can be gained in partnerships um i think the other thing that it that what your answer before spoke to lucy is like that this work the you know like you talked about the importance of doing work on yourself when you're talking about apex and you mentioned psychotherapy then as a part of i imagine how you do that um but i'm also aware in that reflection that you just gave on being in front of the, the, the heavy hitters knowing that you've got the power and the influence there that, that is a part of the work as well it's like often the if you're aware of yourself if we're aware of ourselves if i'm aware of myself the, the the things i do in my work can be as developmental for me the business decisions i make the things i put myself through and say yes to and manage to say no to or whatever the, the challenges are they can be incredibly developmental yeah I I think it's a big driver of my journey is selfishly my own de- my own development what am I interested in developing yeah <laughs> bit of a growth junkie um I think it's a re- I actually think it's a really good 
I've I've made this I this decision that the, the team thing I was talking about before, I didn't really did I? I didn't wholly make that as a developmental choice, but I have done that before in work. I don't think it's a bad reason to decide things. It's like I moved from I was on the coaching team for a leadership program uh in higher education and um got asked to do facilitation. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And I decided to do it to see what that was like, to see, to try. And I went into it really, really clearly with the like the aim of I want to get to a place where I feel as close to as comfortable facilitating a group of 20 leaders as I do coaching one. Because it felt really different at the time. It felt I was full of anxiety. I was basically treating it like uh, probably said this on the show before, but I used to do lots of acting, lots of plays when I was a student. And I basically treated workshops like that, which is a really stressful way to treat them. Because then you have to remember everything you're going to say. And as soon as somebody <laughs> says something that's off script, you, you know, you're in your slightly uncomfortable improv territory. So, you know, to, to, that was an incredible way to go through it. And actually thinking about it, that was a, that was a, that was a great way to learn. And it probably, I'm just thinking if a client said what I've just said to me, I might reflect back something like, it also takes the pressure off a lot. If, if part of the reason you're doing a piece of work is to grow and learn, then success is growing and learning, which is really different to success being delivering every word of a two-day workshop to a group of leaders perfectly, or mm-hmm. even 20, of, 20 leaders having a great workshop. That's yeah. all of that's quite outside of my control, but learning is is something that I can basically, you know, feel at peace with myself at the end of the day because I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. How did it go? The the facilitation thing. Yeah. I'm getting there. You know, it's like it took, I think I think I thought I could do it in one one leadership program yeah. uh, at the time. And I definitely I was reading back some writing that I wrote during that program actually the other day. Um and obvious that it, it was working so it, it like one round of it definitely worked I got closer I got more present in those workshops it required I remember it requiring like dis- discomfort because instead of like basically control managing my anxiety by preparing everything I was going to say you know I just gradually separated myself from that <laughs> but each separation felt like uh, a little bit of fear and tearing and all that kind of thing so yeah but now I mean, I think one of the things I've learned from that, so I'm still working on that program. That was probably 2019. So what, 19, 20, 21. This will be the fourth year. And I worked on it I worked on it a couple of times in a couple of those years. So probably on the fifth and sixth programs that I'm doing now. Now it's like, I'm really like that. And part of that is because I really understand and it can embody the story of that program. That was one of the key uh, step changes. Um, it was also, interestingly, uh, um, this is good. It was also in... Uh, a codependence independence thing because I worked on it with my uh, friend and colleague Joe Hunter. It's part of her leadership program at 64 Million Artists and one of her leadership programs. And then she went on maternity leave. And that's great. I mean, ter- terrible and annoying for me because instead of having Joe as this, you know, she's an amazing woman, all conquering safety net for every moment of discomfort that I have. And also, it's her company. So I can just, I ha- actually have to delegate the awkward stuff to her because she needs to make a call about that stuff. Instead, I had to deal with it all. And that was difficult at times. It's like uh, it was difficult to hold the responsibility of the company. Because actually, if something went wrong in one of those workshops, I, you know, I'm not sure what this would be, but the reputational damage wasn't for me. 
there's actually safety in independence as well because mm-hmm. um it's just on me whereas actually you know I'm, I'm struggling to think what it would actually have been but something happens in one of those workshops it'll it would have been on me to handle it well really because i was the kind of speech marks most senior person in those rooms for the company and it would have been on the company if it had gone wrong so that was pretty uncomfortable but this year having done that last year i have embodied those programs i know them i don't need to think really hard in order to do that so some version of the you know the conscious incompetence to unconscious competence move um it's going on and but and i guess it's been you know, as you asked such a great question, um, I'll keep talking. Uh, it's been, uh, for me, there's also been a kind of, it, that has been part of a bigger journey of something like integration around like who I am and who I can be. For example, I had this part of me that used to, that from the age of 11 to 25, the thing that I mostly did other than work um, in various different jobs was like act. And then if I'm not in front of groups anymore, like where is that part of me and what's happened to that? And am I totally happy that it's disappeared if I'm just doing, it's not quite disappeared doing one-to-one and we're doing, a, I'm doing a bit of it now, right? Cause there's a, we've got the, we're here having a conversation. We have a sense of an audience and we kind of know what that means. But for me, it was also a thing about like, um, I remember this coming up in a coaching session with my coach. I can remember where I was sitting. It was in our old flat. So it would have been before 2016 or 2015 or 2016. There's like a, it's been part of a longer journey for me, which is about, I guess, partly because of, partly because of working at Claw actually, but also being in the broader leadership space. Actually, it's not very trendy in lots of circles to be a lead from the front, tallish, charismatic white man. <laughs> and so actually, I didn't really feel like that was, some parts of me didn't feel like that was okay. Like it's, it was kind of cooler to be an introvert and cooler to, definitely cooler to be speech marks more diverse. And so actually to kind of accept that I have some of those qualities and that I probably want to be using them that took some um, growth as well. Mm. So quite a lot in there, actually. Gosh, so much. I mean, there's so many bits of spaghetti that I could pick up from all of what you've just said. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I was most taken by was this. Uh, that, so that there was some really important stuff there about identity and diversity and a sense of what's okay to be and not okay to be, which I want to put a pin in for a sec. Yeah. Um, there's but the piece around the difference between learning your lines and delivering them and improvising in the here and now with what a group throws at you and how you respond and how they respond and the back and forth and the sort of co-creation of an experience in an improvisational way and how terrifying that can feel as a when you're new to being in a group and the, how useful your lines are and your notes are and your preparation is as a transitional object to help you yeah. move into that uncertainty, but how gradually you can let them go a little bit and be more in the here and now and trust that you can handle whatever comes, comes yeah, your way. Exactly. And I think that um, I think that's true of one-to-one coaching as well. I think that's a phase yeah. that coaches go through because, you know, 
start off thinking a lot about a lot of coaches do and he's thinking a lot about what is the right question to ask when and for me a fundamental shift in my coaching i think becoming far far more effective for want of a better word better for want of a better word you know is that shift is the shift to dancing in the moment now of course when i look at it now actually all that has a lot in common with lots of performance you know that there's almost always especially in a in a group performance whether it's music or, or theater or something different there's almost always some frameworks within which you are operating there kind of has to be otherwise i don't know what it would be but the, you know there are some frameworks and then there is some dancing in the moment mm. that kind of has to happen and that practicing that as a probably as anyone who works with people but certainly as a coach is really important and for me in all that was this awareness i think at the time when i was making that call about the leadership program was um this awareness that i was doing something in my coaching that was incredibly enlivening for me and when i was delivering stuff for groups it was not enlivening in the same way and the question was which i was coming to that which which that that program and the subsequent ones in some ways were my laboratory for as well as being uh interesting important work in lots of ways rewarding in other ways was can i do that with a group is that a thing and if it is when is it possible and what's required for it and um i got quite one of my friends was saying i don't know how you feel about this I was quite relieved the other day to find that one of my friends said, who, who I think oh, he's a consultant as well as a coach, does a lot of um, culture change work. Um, and she said that the, the group stuff that she does, she, you know, she was, her business is she's trying to grow a consultancy with some partners and that kind of thing. And she said that sometimes she just wishes for a day when she could just have some one-on-one -on -one coaching, like where she's just coaching people one-on-one. -on -one. And that, I found that really reassuring because the energy required still does feel quite different to me um to be with a group or a team i think i am like learning to trust more but i guess i'm curious for you teams and groups are obviously important in your work um and the one-on-one -on -one intimate piece you talked about already how mm. does that feel for you after the practice and the work you've done in terms of the maybe that energy exchange piece mm. I think it sounds similar to the way you experience it. So I don't get particularly het up before a one-to-one -one yeah. coaching conversation. I do a bit of processing afterwards, but there's not always a huge amount of processing required. Um, there's a simplicity. I'm, I'm only tracking one person's experience and one relationship, you know, what's going on between you and me here and now, you, you know, add more people into that. You've got you, you've got multiple realities, multiple cycles of experience. That's a gestalt term, which I might come to in a minute. Um, multiple uh, energies. You've got many levels of stuff that you're in charge of who's who's taking up all the airtime is it is it shared properly what's the objective are we moving towards it how's the clock are we sticking to time how's my co-facilitator are we well hitched is the heating working yeah. um 
how do I put this across in a way that makes it most receivable? That group's gone off and is taking longer than the other group. That person's now crying in the corner. You know, there's just, there's just the level of stuff. And then if you do any kind of pre-contracting, pre-diagnosis interviews, whatever, you're receiving all of that beforehand, all those multiple realities you've got to somehow distill into some kind of design. And then afterwards, I often find that as I'm driving down the motorway, I am flooded with, you know, anger, tears, worry, all sorts of big feelings. I often have to process, you know, thank God for supervision, for supportive colleagues, for, you know, all of that stuff, because you hold so much, which is why I barely ever do it on my own anymore. Um, yeah, so it's a really, just- really good point, actually. Like, that's one of the reasons it's like having two or more people there is good, because then there's more people holding all of that yeah. stuff. And I, I find I need space before and I space after. I need to supervision before, supervision after. I need to scaffold myself a lot more around the team stuff. And I love the challenge of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and there is something about, I don't know. It's like, I yeah, it's interesting to be, to be kind of talking about this because there is something about, you know, recently I've talked about it a few times on the podcast actually for various reasons, but so listeners, regular listeners will, will know about this, but I've been, with one of my colleagues and a, a former guest, Mike Toller, we've run some coaching training recently. And I was sitting there for, for a group of consultants who want to be able to do coaching as part of their offer and with teams. So some of the things we're talking about, and I was sitting there at the end of the final module, watching some of them coach and thinking, this is one of the most, if this is one of the most meaningful things that I will do this year, if not the most. And I hadn't really realized it would be that, but there is something about the working with a group um, in those ways or a team that, yeah it does have a different feel to the one-on-one work mm. um in terms of you know it's like the, i guess what i'm saying is there's a reason why despite all that energy that you're talking about you do it still <laughs> despite all the, the the scaffolding needed and all that kind of thing and, and i kind of i understand that um you, you mentioned gestalt lucy and that's been in my mind a lot recently because i've actually been in the the, the gestalt center in london a couple of times recently just to use their space because it's actually a really nice I've got a new building since I, I once did a, if you know this, I, before I found coaching around the time I went on the coaching Academy weekend, I did a load of therapy um, training, open evenings, including one of the assault center, which I really liked, but that was when it was in old street or something. And they've now got a really nice new building near, near St. Pancras. So I've been there a couple of times recently. I'm going again next month. So I've been thinking about the stall, but you've mentioned it a couple of times. I wonder if you could say a bit about it and how it has how and why it's been important to you. Mm, yeah, I'd be happy to. First of all, they want to ask you one more question. Oh, yeah, yeah. What what do you how do you describe Gestalt to people? Yeah, that's partly why I'm asking you, Lucy. I don't <laughs> I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Um yeah, I don't I don't have a good answer um for that. So yeah. I could I could guess one, but I think that's not that interesting. I mean, essentially, maybe it is. My memory, my feel for it is there's a kind of I mean, the problem is all these words get used elsewhere. There's a systemic element to it and our kind of whole person element to it that aren't in some of those other modalities. That's what I remember. And I remember more of, more the feel of the place, um, the old place and the new place. And, yeah. you know, I think I went to, for example, I went to, what was it called? One called a therapy training place in London called WPF. And it was a psychodynamic place and it felt really quite clinical. And Gestalt Centre felt much more whole and much more, mm. I don't know, 
uh, textured, mm. which really appealed to me at the time. No, oh, those are really nice words, whole and textured. And um, I often laugh about it. The more I know about Gestalt, the harder I find it to describe what it is to people. And I know that's you know true for Gestalt proper gurus that I work with. So I um, Gestalt for me is um, has provided a kind of map or a philosophy or a way of being in the world, a way of seeing humanity and how humans grow and change. And it's, it's helped me navigate. Um, it's given me access to a community of whole, warm, welcoming, textured people to learn from. Um, and it continues to have legs for me as a kind of home base. And I and I used to feel like such a magpie in my kind of 20s and 30s, I would say. I would pick from all these different modalities and I'd, take, and I'd be integrative. And I'd, you know, and there's definitely something to be said for that. And I you know, still am like that in some ways. But I think there's also something to be said for picking something and going deep whether it's Jungian work, shadow work, whether it's psychodynamic work or whatever, you know, takes your fancy, you know, at the bottom of them all, there's something about oneness, connection, spirituality, and that they share a lot of, um, but there's something about kind of really getting into one school of thought or way of being that I, that has been working for me for about 10 years now and Gestalt has been, and, I've never actually been in the London Gestalt Centre because my centre for Gestalt is in America on Cape Cod, which is not a bad place to go and learn. You get to go to the beach at lunchtime. And um, and that is a, a group of people who came out of an institute in Cleveland who, and they were the a sort of original students of Fritz Perls um, so I'm working with people who are kind of a couple of generations down from, from Fritz Perls, who was the kind of the big name founder of Gestalt. Although at this point, I always like to shout out to Laura Perls, his wife, who is less showy, but nonetheless <laughs> kind of built the, built the way of working. And yeah, it is, it's a, it's, it's a very systemic, it has a sense of, every human being as existing in an interconnected web of other people, other non-human things in a context, in an environment. And so it sees, sees everything as a constant co-creation between us and our environment. It has a way of not, not favoring cognitive or emotional or somatic, but somehow bringing them all together it's humanistic, so it has a similar kind of underlying sense to um, as something like person-centered work, which you know trusts there's some kind of organismic drive for thriving and health that if you can access, help people access, they can find their way. Um, so it's not from that expert, I'll tell you what you need. It's more, you know, let's let me help you access your own drive for for health and growth for you um it's playful and experimental and and very much in the here and now so um in fact i did um a recent very short course for for the apex members called 
gestalt experimentation in the coaching room um, because so much of I think what we do as coaches is we talk about what our clients might do and then they go and do all of their doing without you um and the, uh, some of the early gestalt writing in back in the 70s um talked about aboutism you know that gestalt gestalt was trying to just just tear down this sort of culture of rumination and talking about doing and let's just have an experience here and now so in, you know instead of talking about what are you going to say to your boss right let's put him in the empty chair talk to him now um instead of talking about how sad you feel we say let's feel it you know let really go to what it feels like feel it with now in the room and then we'll talk we'll talk we'll talk to the sadness you know so and it's quite creative there's kind of some of those some of the early gestatists were really attracted to the to the art and the performance and the creativity of it and, and they were often artists and actors and um as well which I'm you know I'm drawn to that aspect of it and I I teach something called the Cape Cod model which is an approach to working with pairs teams couples families to both therapists and coaches which is a which really supports me in my work with with groups and is also applicable one-to-one um, so it's probably it's probably enough <laughs> on Gestalt. I could go on. We could do another episode on Gestalt, just just that. But yeah, I don't um, want to give a lecture. I'm sorry. No, no, that was great, and there's so much texture in there, and it also makes me feel better that that even the people who have been doing it a long time, or especially the people who have been doing it a long time, um, still struggle to explain it. But there's so much yeah. texture in there, texture in there that um, people listening will will definitely get. You know, it's interesting that. You know, you talk about choosing something and really going deep with it. And then the things you mentioned were, I guess, really psychotherapeutic schools. And I guess I wonder, you know, we talked already about psychotherapy being a part of your um, personal development, the way that you support yourself in, in the in the list of, um, I don't know what it is, training or professional development on, on your bio that you sent over to me. It's a long list, like I said, an intimidating list of things that you've learned. But a lot of it is, in, or a number of the things on there are in the counselling and psychotherapy space. What is it about that different but similar related modality to coaching that that kind of makes that so important for you? I think a lot of people in the coaching, particularly sort of organisational, commercial coaching world, have made a lot of money taking what counsellors and psychotherapists and healers and witch doctors have been doing for years and putting a trademark on it and making it into a model and making it a bit more future-focused and performance-focused. But really, a, a, the the fertile raw goodies of coaching have have been mulched in the counseling psychotherapy world and then I think coaches need to just accept that 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 coaching exists on the back of that that world so I for me it's been like going back to the source yeah um and there's, there's a lot of humility in in that world and a lot you know uh, and it's been exploited I think I think it's been exploited (laughs) um so I yeah I'm getting a little bit on my soapbox about it but um I think coaches need to understand how much 
they they're they're standing on the shoulders of counselors and therapists yeah um there are some key differences and it's very important to be aware of the differences and it's very important to be aware of ethics and safety and um but for me uh, it quickly became obvious that that if I wanted to really deepen my practice at being with people who are going through change and transition or stuckness that the place to go get what I needed was 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 that world whether it's getting my own therapy or learning about therapy and I'm also now working to get accredited as a therapist so to yeah. add that into my yeah, uh, practice yeah 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 it's like um I'm always grateful that I was as I was experimenting with what was going to happen in this phase that I got reasonably far with psychotherapy and um counseling because for all those reasons you said because it brings in this whole you know even I just did a actually let's well, well maybe this is the good segue um what I ended up with the furthest I got was a two-term intro um to couples counseling actually at Tavistock relationships and um but as part of that what I the thing that made me think of that is I read one of those probably one of the textbooks that you read on you get yeah what's he called Jacobs I think he's called uh, you know intro to counseling or psychotherapy or something i can't remember we could find it but probably it gets set as reading on lots of intro courses but it's really like it, i've that has informed lots of what i've done as a coach mm. you know and, uh, in in lots of ways and probably some of that i would have come to anyway but those foundations yeah very important and i also like that you talked about witch doctors as well because i was um <laughs> because I heard someone say, I'm not, oh, I wonder who it was. I'll try and remember this and put it in the show notes if I can remember. I can't now. I heard somebody saying, talking about dreams and how, you know, in some ways Freud like made his, or the, the you know, the, the, the psychotherapist in the, whenever that was, when was that, the thirties made their name by, by talking about dreams and analyzing dreams for the, like, as though that was a new thing. When in fact, the witch doctors and shaman have been doing that across the world for thousands of years. And we just forgotten it briefly. And then these, these guys become really famous um, because they, they bring it back. So there's an element of that as well, probably. I'm not sure I'm going to remember what that is. I, I've got absolutely no idea. But, but the segue I'm going to choose, or if, if you're up for this, is yeah that couples piece. So one of the reasons that that conversation that we had at Eve's book launch in 2017 or wherever it was stayed with me was because I think I've, this is how I remember it, but memory is sketchy at the best of times for everybody. So tell me if this is wrong was that you, I think you told me a story about doing some couples training and being either having done or being about to bring that into working with pairs of leaders essentially in organizations. So those same dynamics, again, the dyna- I can imagine the dynamics of, of the Gestalt are there as well, but there was something about that and I wonder if you could say, is that, first of all, is my memory vaguely correct? And second of all, what, so so the reason that interested me at the time, right, was because in some ways this whole journey for me was, uh, came from couple stuff, came from the reason I ended up on that course was because in some ways the, what the switch that flicked for me around, oh, if I see the world differently, then my life is different, was around romantic relationships. It was around, oh, I can be different in this. And my relationship, the relationships I experience will be different if I am different and if I change how I think about them and I change what I do. And, mm. and you know, it's like, it feels like the most obvious thing in the world. And yet it wasn't to me. It was like th- there was some fixed mindset in that space. So that flipped a, uh, that flipped this journey in some ways for me th- 10 years ago. And 
then the couples thing was there. So when you said that in 2017, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's why I probably part of the reason I remember the the pairs thing five years later. But yeah, yeah. Is, is that story right? And 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 yeah, tell me about the, right. the pairs work that you do. It is right. And I'd love to talk more about what you what what you got from your your experience. It's hard for me not to interview you. Yeah. Um, I so I um another another one of my link I didn't give you the link actually but um I set up a kind of web front end called executivepairs.com and um it's my attempt to say you know sometimes instead of working with one leader at a time or working with a whole team it's really good just to get the two key people supported by a coach and actually my model is to work with two coaches and two clients so it's like a square um it avoids drama triangles if you do it that way and there's so much going on in a pair that you need that you sometimes need that um I it was also a way of really practically applying my Cape Cod model training so the Cape Cod model is a uh, a way of working a way of seeing what couples and pairs do a way of intervening with couples and pairs to raise their awareness of what they're doing helping couples and pairs experiment with different ways of being with each other so it was a, and and I still thoroughly believe that it's a massive gap in the coaching market that um there's lots of reasons why it's not it's not ballooning and taking off because there's there's stigma and difficulty around you know people see it like mediation or marriage guidance or um you have to um somehow it's a bit more exposing to say I'm going to do some pairs coaching um about with my relationship with this person um than it is to say I'm going to get something for myself or I'm going to do it with the team so I'm not going to say it's like a huge part of my business because it's not a huge part of the market, but I'm chipping away and letting people know it's there and I'm doing it. I'm doing it with um, a few other partners who, who do it with me. And um, like you said something about seeing and, and what I love about working with pairs is that you take off the glasses in which you're looking at what does an, what's an individual doing? And you put on the glasses that say, what is this couple doing together? What is the dance they're doing that they're both part of, that they're co-creating? And in what ways is that serving them well? And in what ways might it have a cost? Or in what way might, in what other steps might they need to learn? You know, um, and that is um, a really radical way of seeing the world that not many of us have been trained to 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 look at you know we don't look at the world like that um and it's also an incredibly empowering thing for people to take part in and you know I've been on the end of it um to see that oh we don't we don't have to be stuck yeah. in this way of being we can change the dance and I can change it by altering my steps a bit and you can change it by altering your steps a bit and suddenly we've got a whole new way of being with each other whereas you you know when the tension got high we used to do this and now we found a way of doing this or yeah. um, you know you used to be bad cop with the kids and I used to be good cop and now we've evened it out a bit or you know you used to be in charge of being the powerful CEO and I used to be in charge of being the soft people focused COO and now we've worked out that we don't have to polarize or you know whatever the dance is that's that you're you're doing to be able to see it together and not feel stuck in it is 
it can it's, and it can get results so fast. Yeah. And yeah. often we're stuck with a one-to-one thing. Yeah. And this guy saying, I can't get on with my CEO, CFO, whatever. Oh, if only we could just get you together. We'd like, we'll solve this in 90 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So it's, I can really see how it how it links with that. Um and I don't know if if this is the question you were going to ask me before you can ask your question if it's different. But the thing that you just said that in a way was the switch that I was talking about that got flipped for me, you know, 10 years ago was was that thing. It's like we have this, there is a relationship dynamic going on here. Um, I don't think I would have used those words. And the key thing is I can do something about that. <laughs> it's not just, you know, it's, it's not just fixed. And actually, you know, ideally, both people do something about it. But even if I just change something, if I can bring a bit more consciousness and do these kind of things, and I can learn what they might be, and there's, there's lots of great resources out there, I think um, I can't really, you know, I still haven't really got like a, I still haven't really written about this that much. It's interesting because, you know, it's, it's really hard to um, overstate the impact on <laughs> my relationship with my now wife of me knowing that you know and her then getting interested in that dance and in playing with it and helping us have a more uh, fulfilling or aligned or loving relationship it's like to know that you can do that and i mean i i, I don't know about everyone <laughs> i can't really talk, speak for everyone else but um for me the difference between knowing that and doing that and not knowing it is enormous in my life and my suspicion is there are lots of people who don't know it for whom the difference could be enormous. And um, there are lots of places people could start with that, um, which we could put some in the show notes or something. But um, yeah, I just think so. So if that was the question, if some version of that was the question that you were going to ask, that was what came yeah, up. So it, but I can really you know, see it, was, it. Yeah, go on, sorry. Well, what was the bit that kind of got your attention or led to some change, change for you? Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I, I'll say it because on the high level, I think I think a key moment in that was this is amazing. I started listening to it again the other day, actually, for probably the fifth time. Amazing audio book by a woman called Alison Armstrong called um, The Amazing Development of Men, Second Edition. And so a big part of me, Second Edition is important because she revamped it a bit and put in some extra stuff. It's just a couple of hours or something like that, three hours maybe, um, audio book. And, you know, for me, it was like, and it was okay, there are some common dynamics amongst men and women, and you can understand yourself better by listening to this. And it's not perfect everywhere, of course, and it's not perfect for everyone, but it's going to help you a lot if you listen, you, Robbie, if you listen to this um, and do some of these things. And then you try a couple of them and it's like, oh, this is this is an immeasurably better conversation. Maybe I should do this more often. And then suddenly you're away. So if people want to go and look at that. So for me, some some of it was, it was the kind of the higher level thing was the thing you were saying, you said before about, there's a dynamic here between the two of us. And if I, we can change that, that's like the high level insight. And the practical one was, here are some things that men and women do to each other, which don't commonly, which don't make either of them happy in a, in a pair. And if we do, if you choose to try and think like this a bit more, um, and the thinking is always give the other person the benefit of the doubt, a little bit more, understand that they're doing their best a little bit more. Um, And then if maybe if you do these few things, um, I'm trying to think what, Actually, I mean that book in a way is interesting because it's about. For me, it was about she made it for women, but actually she found accidentally that lots of men were really interested in it because it kind of explained what the hell they were going through at different stages <laughs> in their life, um, which is very useful. It's partly why I went back to it the other day. But um, yeah, lots, lots, of, and then and then it turns out there's this whole world there of of 
people, very wise people who have thought about this stuff a lot that you can learn about a lot. Yeah. And, you know, there ain't that many dancers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it, once you've seen a few, you can go, oh, that's that one where you've somehow decided between you that you do all the leaning in and you do all the sitting back. Or, so why don't we try just sitting like this for a bit? <laughs> yeah. Or you've said you've kind of decided between you that you're going to do all the talking and you're going to do all the asking of questions. Yeah. And you're noticing that, you know, you're, you're finding that the project you're working on together is not it's not going well. You're rubbing up up against each other. So let's just try. And then this is where the gestalt thing comes in. In the session, we get to some realization of what our patterns are and the ways in which they're great and also the ways in which they might be holding us back and then we try something new let's just try if you just sit and ask all the questions for five minutes and you you do all the talking what's you know what's it feel like what happens what's different you know how might you just try and play with that by having a question tally in your next meeting or really little things that can completely change a dance um yeah and i think it's it's just it's really important to say i think that it's really important to say this this the thing emphasize the thing you're saying about gestalt and um, practicing in the session that this is something that any coach can do and is a really powerful thing to do i mean you know they can't do it with the sophistication of somebody who studied gestalt for 10 years or whatever but it's like the aboutism it's a really good point um i heard i did some training um kind of indirectly with a guy called fred kaufman not on live calls with him very much he wrote some my favorite book of his is probably The Meaning Revolution. And in this training for coaches, you know, he, he he talked a lot about victim player mindset in the training. And, you know, we that's a whole sidebar, but the idea being that when you believe that the world is just happening to you, you're powerless to change it. And often when we're talking about somebody else in a coaching session, we're in victim mindset, right? We're talking about them and they are something in a normal coaching session, unless you can get them in the room in some way that actually in this moment, we can't do anything about. Um, and as soon as you shift that into what you're saying, it's like, well, what if they're in this empty chair here, or I've started because of that training running role plays a lot more, even on a really simple scale. It's like, well, what if you could, if you had them here, what would you say to them? And then what would they say back to you? And then you basically in a role play, or if you want to make it kind of deeper and more dynamic coach plays one person, client plays the other. And mm. It, mm. lots and lots of stuff it's, i'm saying all this partly because just to bounce off what you're saying and partly because i think it's um coaches listening who have never done either of those two things play with playing with one of those next time someone starts talking about a difficult conversation is a really different way of being and a, a bit like that you know experimenting with the person in the moment or the, or the pair in the moment about what it's like to do something different mm. it, it's a is, I don't think I've ever done the empty chair thing, but the role play thing. Just had a, had a client. We've been doing interview prep, but the interview prep we've been doing is every week or two, we rock up and I play the hard nosed exec interviewing him, which is a lot of fun for me. Gets me to live out my I don't know billions <laughs> fantasies and um, uh, yeah, and like, but but you get into the place then, which I think as a coach or a psychotherapist, people are often in, but it happens more in psychotherapy. Because in psychotherapy, often people, I think, think more about the transference, about what's going on inside me and how that is a reflection of the person in the, on, in the conversation with me. But it does allow you, like, 
this amazing, if you're in the role play, it's really interesting because you get this amazing opportunity to give somebody feedback of what's it like when I'm, when you're having your difficult conversation with me, like what's the experience of somebody on the other end of that? Of course, it's not the same as the real conversation, but surprising things come out of that. And as I'm sure they do, if, if you're letting somebody have that conversation with, with the imagined boss. <laughs> so Lucy, let's, let's, we're, you know, we are, we are rapidly approaching the end of our time today. We're not really, we've got loads of time left, um, but I guess, you know, like, like we said, we could go into that stuff for another two hours. Hmm. I'd love to get just a picture. We know we've covered most of the stages of your career and you kind of gave a little brief picture, I think, of what your work with clients looks like now. You kind of mentioned the different moving parts, um, team, individual, supervision, those things. Which are the bits that are, like, which you're most interested in at the moment? Mm. Well, I'm interested in them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, the bits that are, the, uh, maybe I'll talk about the bits that are newer. Um, voice of probably my mum in my head going, you spread yourself so thin, Lucy. Why don't you just stick to one thing? So it's kind of the voice of you as well, though, isn't it? It's the voice of like, uh, you can learn to be a magpie for a while and then go deep on one thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, and I think, I think whole other conversation about sort of breadth and depth and, um, I am getting interested in how I use my skills um, more systemically around the big issues of the day. I'm getting more, I think, more altruistic in my old age. So um, the newer things for me, one is the therapy training that I'm doing. Um, and there's a big part of that is about using my skills to support people who don't have access to big training budgets and development budgets and, and are in, you know, in a really difficult life context. And um, so there's a kind of a longer term sense of wanting to do that more. And the, the other issue that I care about passionately is the environment and what we're doing to the planet and climate change. And um, so there's, I've been on a journey for sort of three or four years with, how do I use my skills in that realm so that I can feel feel more agency? So I'm already doing a huge amount in my personal life and you know directly, but um, have I got? Is there a place for me to be a coach or be a consultant or be a facilitator somewhere where I can say I'm actually doing something about that this massive issue that um, we're all facing? as humanity and so I am doing some work as a facilitator for the University College London Climate Action Unit um, which um, it just it takes all of what I already know all my facilitation skills coaching skills gestalt sort of foundations and allows me to apply it to support people who are working on climate action Um, and it has also given me some extra stuff, which is um, the knowledge that the professors of the Climate Action Unit bring of 
how to talk about climate change in a way that supports people's agency and resourcefulness and um, propensity to act rather than leads to hopelessness or stuckness or disempowerment. So finding agency, finding agency in community on a big, tough systemic issue is something I'm excited about help, helping people do. to do. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and I wonder just that that idea of um, taking the gifts, the skills, the experience, the training that you have and putting it to work on these big systemic issues. It sounds like you've really found a way to do that at least you know one way maybe maybe there maybe there are others as well i don't know um i imagine hearing that for a lot of people who really feel the pain of those big issues the be it that one or or another one and we probably name name some more but what did you learn from the process you said it's been like a three year process or so of thinking about mm. that. what have you learned about the process of yeah the kind of i guess the facilitator because in different ways that's what you are in lots of places explicitly there and 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 what most coaches in some ways are they're a facilitator of change you know what what is the best way what what did you learn about that process of trying to take those skills and that those strengths to the issues that matter to you um well i think the the first thing was that i um had to sit with quite a lot of hopelessness and despair about the big issue before i found a way to mobilize and so that was a, a a couple of years journey of getting t- increasingly tired of holding my concern at bay and try and not really looking at it then really looking at it which became very overwhelming and you know catastrophic thoughts and um and then finding a way to talk about that, to find other people who are concerned about it and to educate myself more, listen to more, read more, look at it, not turn away from it, because turning away from it wasn't really working for me anymore. Um, and then it was it was really a process of finding community, finding other people, and then things coming out of that um, in various ways taking a few little initiatives. So I'm part of a learning and development kind of professional network and I got together with a colleague and ran a session called How Do You Feel About the Planet with a bunch of colleagues just to, you know, process how other people were feeling about it. Um, Talked to friends who were working in that area and networked and it ended up with a connection with this amazing bunch of people at the Climate Action Unit who for years have been chipping away at the systemic level problem of how do policymakers talk to scientists? How do people who are actually trying to solve this problem work together in a way that doesn't doesn't lead to dysfunction and breakdown in dialogue, but can lead to action? Taking and and, and saying what can I do? You know, and I I joined a program with them and got some training with them, and I'm I'm now in a small way contributing to some of their work. Um. So yeah, that I mean that's what it looked like for me, finding my agency in a very messy way um, through connecting with others. And some of it was sort of dark nights of the soul, and some of it was a bit more joyful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I heard someone talking the other day about um how there's a real absence of joy in a lot of the um 
what we call it environmental movement um and that's that makes it hard to enroll people sometimes because like you said the dark nights of the soul it's not if there's something that's completely absent of joy it's really hard to look at it um, i think it appears that there's an absence of joy when you only read about it yeah, what yeah. You read, when, when you when you're on the edges of those communities of people who are acting what you hear is the rage and the outrage and the doom and gloom and the, the fear and the when you're in the communities doing something about it you uncover the you take the lid off the joy or you see behind the curtain and you know however you choose to get involved in whatever issue you want to get involved in I think it's once you're in you're acting in community that you discover that humanity can't can't do that do this stuff without joy (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. um so whether it's you know you might feel all of the rage and all of the fear and but stringing up your hammock across Oxford Street and cooking street food for your Extinction Rebellion pals you know which is what a friend of mine has done recently has got joy in it (laughs) yeah yeah you know and I'm facilitating with a couple of amazing neuroscientists um for a group who are in a church community and there's all sorts of fear about where we're going but there's also you know a lot of laughs about trying to fix it and doing it together so the the media is not portraying (laughs) the joy that's available yeah I mean it doesn't really does it there's not a lot of space in the media for joy um that's not really what sells newspapers or gets clickable. clicks on the bbc yeah um lucy like i'm gonna ask a really practical question it might feel like a little bit of a a bit of a jump but i'm curious I just want to ask one of these practical questions we haven't really got into your the day-to-day of your coaching practice these days um and so i'm curious like when you do one-on-one work because we've talked about everything else really in quite a lot of detail well, we've touched on in detail all the other bits of the work that you do apart from the one-to-one coaching um and that's perfect like that's part of life as a coach really is all those other bits all the different things that, that many of us end up doing um who are your one-to-one clients these days mm-hmm. where do they come from and if if there is a typical way that you like to work in terms of number of sessions structures that kind of thing what is it and if not mm. why isn't there I'm really glad we're talking about this because it maybe I take it for granted and it, because it's such a bedrock of what I do. Um, so my clients are a mixture of, I mean, they're nearly all um, organisations of some scale, um, but the more people have moved from big organisations to smaller organisations, I've ended up with, you know, a range of sizes organisation. I think just because of my age and network and experience that tend to be people who are on the exec team or board or who were, you know, one or maybe two levels below that. Um, some of them are um, come from relationships that go back years and years, you know, HR directors who I knew when they were an HR business partner and just starting out and they're now HRD. Um, somebody I, who I, did a team development piece and then eventually they started climbing the ladder and wanted me to work with their team and then now I barely see them because I'm just working with their people because they've got 
Um, so there's a lot of just by reputation and relationship. I do have some clients where I'm on the coach register slash faculty. Yeah, I was going to say that. So for I mean, this is maybe just too long an answer, but for people who are interested in doing that kind of work, what are the steps to do that? So it's like the if people who are, uh, it's the executive coaching thing again in some ways, isn't it? It's like to be in that corporate leadership space. Sounds like a part of it's the relationships. What for somebody who wanted to get into there? What's what are the are there any steps that that make a difference? I think I'm in danger of being a bit like my mum trying to teach me how to parent. Yeah. It's like it was so long ago that she did it. Yeah. And times have changed so much. Yeah. That she probably really shouldn't be trying to advise me. Um <laughs> I I mean, I've taken my route, which is through organizations through which I've met lots of people. Um, it really depends where you start from. I, you know, that's probably such an unhelpful question. But if you're not in and connected to systems, organizations, networks, you need to you need to find a way to be in by being an associate, by joining some training where you meet people who are in um it's this mycelial network of you know give and take and trust and that we that we're all part of you need to be in it you need to find your way in it um and and give and give so that so that you're easy to give back to um make yourself known and never be afraid to say what you want I would like to be on the coaching register. How do I do that? Um, do you know anyone who can help me? Because I really want to. I, I don't know. Is I, I think it's a great answer, that? Lucy. Like, because it's it's actually really clear that that it is a. And you said it really clearly. It's like if you're not connected in, then find the way to connect in. And it's like a you know your, yeah. It might be that the exact way that you did that. I don't know, whenever you think it, well, from the start of your career, right? Because you were in those big organizations in different ways a lot. That might not be the way that someone else will do it, but they will have found, they will, if, if they end up doing the kind of that kind of work, it will, I'm pretty sure, always be because, maybe not quite, but always, almost always be because they found the way to have those connections. Um, so then two more questions about that. One is, I imagine that if, that it sounds like that's been the kind of, those kinds of coaching engagements have been the you said they're the bedrock and it sounds like they've probably engagements with those kinds of people have been the bedrock for a while so i'm hypothesizing that if if you didn't like doing that work in lots of ways you would probably have stopped or it would have changed some way so if that's right what do you like about that work and then back to that thing that i asked before practically what does that tend to look like um well maybe do the practical side first so um tends to look like packages of sessions um it tends to have a there's always a chemistry session so that a coachee is choosing somebody they've got a good sense of yeah, anything in particular um, you do in those sessions they're 25 minutes long i don't charge for them i ask people 
if they've had a coach before, I ask them what their expectations are. I ask them what they hope to get out of it. I ask them what they want to ask me. I have a little spiel about me, but I tend to ask them first what they want to know. Um, I have learned just to be myself and try not to sell myself to what they're asking for, but just say who I am. And um, some people say no and some people say yes. Um, And then sometimes I like to do a little bit of work in the session because I like to just, I like to experiment. What if we just did five minutes on that now? Yeah. (laughs) And and then you said packages of sessions. Do you have like a favoured... I don't know, number of sessions that you like to do with people or uh, does it depend on the organisation? I mean, I do bespoke it, but it, you know, often ends up looking similar. And sometimes a client comes with a notion, you know, we're going to do four, we're going to do six, it's going to be a year, they're going to be monthly. Um, There is usually a bit of a diagnostic phase in which I'll definitely talk to the coachee. I'll sometimes also talk to line managers or HR directors or VPs. Um, and then put forward, this is what I think. Um, I te- they, they tend to be in blocks rather than open-ended with because I quite like to do a block and then review and do a block and then review. Um, and they're anything between two sessions, two weeks apart and six weeks apart. And then if I get into a longer relationship somebody, with somebody, I'll really let them set the pace and they might want to see me twice a year or... Um, and and the trigger is often a org change or a 360 feedback or a development program they've been on. Um, I do goal setting, contracting. The more I study psychotherapy, the hotter I am on ethics, confidentiality, legality, uh, safety. Um, and I, I try to develop a relationship with the buyer. I try to have a relationship with the HRD. I try to have a relationship with the sponsor and check in and make myself available. And there's a little bit of unpaid work around that, but I do see it as a relationship sale over time and a trust building piece over time. Yeah. And, and then in terms of what what you enjoy about that work or what you like about it? I just never got over the thrill of um, being someone who someone trusts to think out loud with. Um, I find it intensely engaging and absorbing. The time goes like that. I love um, the challenge of everybody's different. Some people come open like this and some people come closed like this and so you never know what you're going to get um I love applying the skills and techniques that I've picked up over the years I love experimenting and playing and let's try something now and see what happens um I, I love the satisfaction of somebody saying um wow my god I never thought about that before isn't that amazing or I've never told that to anyone before so I know there's some ego in there as well. That's some kind of feel good that I'm helping you. Similar to what you get out of it. Yeah. I don't think we should worry about that really. Like, cause part of it is it's like people worrying about getting paid sometimes. It's like, well, you've got to do, if, if this is going to keep, if, if this is good work that it's good for you to be doing, it has to in some way become sustainable. And so we have to get 
probably, but for most people, it's useful to get some money. And for everyone, it's useful if it gives you some things that nourish you and yeah. some energy. And um, so I don't think anyone should feel guilty about feeling good when you get those moments where somebody says, you know, I've never thought about that before. I see my yeah. whole world differently or whatever that is. I think the thing you said about energy exchange is really interesting. I get energy from the process itself, regardless of the result. And I think that has sustained me doing this work for so long. Even the ones where you say, sorry, it's not going anywhere. I still got energy off the sessions where it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Somehow, because I find, I think it's like a craft mentality rather than a, I don't know what the opposite is, but even if I make a shit plate, the process of throwing the plate and painting it and glazing it and was a joy to me. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like to make it sustainable, if that can be true, that's a real, that's going to, that's a resilience tool, right? Mm. If that's true, where if, if everything's tied to the result and whether the person has a great time, that's like makes life, I think, a lot, a mm. lot harder. And, and like you say, it makes it harder to keep doing something like this for such a long time. Um, Lucy, we actually are almost at time now. Bef- before we finish, is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to say or... Um, or share anything that that feels important that's unsaid at the moment? Yeah, loads. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I haven't mentioned my family. You know, all this 20 years, I've been married to someone. I've been bringing up two boys who are now nearly adults themselves. I've been a sister. I've been a friend. I've been, you know, I've had a life and that just feels like deserves a mention. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and if you think about the journey that you've been on the answer's probably everywhere this is a terrible question but what I was going to ask is where have been the moments where that has played a really big part in your journey well I think it's a constant um, it's constant decision making around where I spend my time and energy. So it's very present in my sort of life juggle, which you're familiar with and we're all familiar with. Um, I have a kind of real joy and enthusiasm for work, and I have to really work hard at the balance. Um, I my family are the kind of rock and the safe place for, and my nourishment and my, you know, the place from which I can be me. So everything is the answer to, you know, what are they to me? And they support my work in every way by just enabling me to function in the world as a, you know, a happy, healthy human being. Um, I hope I, you know, I hope I've shown my boys something about what it is to be a woman in the world who is financially independent is powerful is you know it can be can be a mother and can be a worker and that felt like it was sort of my generation of women's job to prove could be pulled off you know often at great a great cost to us but my husband has been the most incredible modern man around all of that um and been a real team player with all of that. Um, yeah, that's something that, that's just some of what springs to mind. 
Yeah, lovely. Feels like a really, yeah, a really nice place to bring this conversation to a close. You see, it's, yeah, it feels like um, there were lots of things we could have double clicked on perhaps that we didn't and I didn't get to ask about um, vertical development or to compare our notes on, on that and all kinds of other things that I'll have to wait for a second. One of the most useful maps of the world that I hold. Yeah. Just a map, but it's very useful. Yeah, which is there a yeah, which particular one for people so they can look it up? Well, the two that I'm familiar with is Tor- is Torbert's model, so the Heart Hill model, um, and also Terry O'Fallon's stages model. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah. So people can uh, we'll put links to those in the wherever people are listening to this. Um, and I, yeah, I, I didn't come across the Terry O'Fallon one, and then they, there was a great two part podcast. I think one with Terry O'Fallon and one with somebody else on the Coaches Rising podcast recently, where I kind of learned about that. And I've learned quite a bit, different bits about uh, vertical development from them. So people can look that up. Yeah, useful maps. Um, yeah, we'll put links to everything we've talked about um, wherever people are uh, listening and at thecoachesjourney.com. But mostly, Lucy, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. And I wish it hadn't been, what was it, five years since we were last having a conversation. Let's do this again in less than five years' time. I would love that. It seems like a very elaborate way to have a chat with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and for me to have a chat with you, it's like, well, but it, but I sometimes think it is like, you know, I, it, one of my current struggles is I'm very aware that I don't create since we, so I, I, my attempt to be a modern man is, well, and, and be the kind of dad I want to be is that I work only work four days now since my um, daughter was born. And one of the results of that is I've just doubled down on my very kind of strict, what do I say yes and no to? And it does mean that uh, I am often thinking strange thoughts like, well, can I create, you know, having a conversation with somebody, it's like, can I create content out of this? But yes, this is an elaborate way to get to hang out, but let's, we could do it again. Like, that's the good thing. It got it, it got it on our radar. Here we are having this conversation. So um, we'll do it. Listeners, if you end up just getting Lucy on every um, month's pod- Coach's Journey podcast from now on, maybe that's just how we found time to hang out so yeah lucy thanks so much oh my god you're so welcome and thank you to all the people that have supported me along the way and all my colleagues and the people i learn from and you know i know it feels very much like this has been an interview with lucy but i am so aware of the of the chorus of support and partnership and teaching and learning that i've had from all the names I've mentioned in the in, in this and all the ones I haven't. So big, big love to all of those people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can really feel them in this conversation, actually, because they have been so present. Yeah, thanks so much, Lucy. Alrighty, see you soon. Hello, everybody. Robbie here again. A couple more just very quick things to say to you before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day. The first is to thank the members of the Coaches Journey community and supporters of the podcast um, for all their ongoing support. And in particular, Alex Witten, Alex McIntyre, Alex Swallow, Ken Bruren, Neil McKinnon and Ruth Saville. Thank you. Um, The second is to say, if you've loved this podcast, um, and if you've listened regularly, you might be interested in supporting the show. There are a few ways you can do that. A little aside, it's supporting me more than the show. You could buy my books, um, or share them with somebody, or write a review, as I mentioned at the start of the show. But more specifically for The Coach's Journey, you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the show. You can do this at patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney. There's links um, on thecoachesjourney.com too. Um, What this means is you give a little bit of money every month, 
um, to support the show, um, to help it reach more people, um, to help me cover my costs and, and make it as impactful as I can. Um, and in exchange, you get some things from me, advance notice of guests, the chance to um, ask questions if, if you want to, depending on, on what level you pay and, and, and many more things beside that. And if you'd like to do that, and also be a client of mine, you might be interested in the Coach's Journey community. Now, I spoke a little bit about this at the start of the show and because we've got a, it's a great time to join now because you can really get a feel for what it's like to be a member. There's a, a, an in-person event coming up. Uh, it does have an extra, an extra fee for it, but you can only have access to, to that event by becoming a member of the Coach's Journey community. Um, and our September call is uh, open to all members. So you can join at the lowest fee, which is £10 a month. Um, if you join now, you'll have access to come to the event on the 10th of August, but also to join that call in September. And if you don't, if you don't after that, want to stay a member of the community, you don't have to. Um, that's what makes it the most flexible and affordable way of working with me. Um, it's also their wonderful calls, some of the absolute highlights of my month. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the members said they're just beautiful recently, and that is a great way to describe them. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can find out lots more at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, again, all the links are at thecoachesjourney.com so you can find it there. If you've got any questions, you can contact me via that website too. So thanks to everybody who's been a supporter and a member so far. Um, thank you for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. Mm-hmm.